For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For the next several episodes of The Rabbit Room podcast, leading up to Easter Sunday, we are honored to present a series of sermons by Pastor Russ Ramsey of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Russ describes them as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. So we're going to follow him now as he leaves the upper room. They leave the Last Supper and they head to what was a customary meeting place, according to Luke, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And so I'd invite all who are able to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word, Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray once more. Father, in these short six verses of Scripture, we have an incredible picture of your mercy and grace and how it works in the lives of your people. Father, I pray for all here who are discouraged, who are feeling that they are simply by their conduct, by their lives, by the hand they feel they've been dealt Uh, Those who feel they're just disqualified from mercy or from grace or from hope, I pray for them, Father. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel coming through in such a powerful way. Lord, it is so important for us to understand that your crucifixion was not an accident and it was not the consequence of you being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it was why you came to offer up your life in our, in the place of ours, to, to die for us, to rise again, conquering death on our behalf and giving us life in your name. Father, I don't know where people are this morning. I don't know what this morning was like for folks as they were preparing to come here. I don't know what the weekend's been like or what the week has been like or the year. I know people here are discouraged. I know some are really struggling. I know some are feeling like... They're not really even sure if the gospel still applies to them anymore with the questions they've been asking or the trials they've been facing or the sins they've been committing. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the power of the gospel, the power of the salvation that we have in you and how we are just unable to match the strength of your salvation. We cannot undo what you have done. And so, Lord, would you encourage our hearts today, especially as we come to this table later, 
to commune with you, to fellowship with you, and with each other as a visible church on earth. Thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So 14 weeks ago, this happens with me a lot, 14 weeks ago when we were starting this series, there was a verse. Now remember, we're pulling from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these different gospels, and there was one verse and really one clause that stood out to me, and I just couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait to get to this turn of a phrase in Scripture, this little clause, because it captured my attention and just filled me with a sense of awe and wonder. And I knew it wouldn't come until we got to here. And I knew I'd have to wait. And it's taken everything in me to wait because I think about this little turn of a phrase and I, and I think of this statement that Jesus made that our title from the series is taken from when he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. There's this strength in the person of Jesus. And in this little clause that we find in today's text, it just blows my mind. If there's a takeaway for me from this first half of the series, I'd have to say that it's been this picture of the strength of Jesus that we've seen in every situation that he's been in. He's never been the victim. He's never been the one who's being acted upon. He's never lost control of a room when he's been there. He's never lost an argument. He's never misstepped along the way. He's, he's, been, he's been laying his life down. And we've seen from the text as it's been unfolding that he, he really is doing this and it really is getting rough. And it really is getting to a crisis point. And there's been this unflinching resolve as he's faced his accusers, as he's faced people who wanted him dead, as he's faced people who were lying about him in order that he might be arrested. There's just this resolve that has left me just awestruck by him. And so we come to this text into this one little clause and I find myself again just captured by the strength of Jesus Christ. So what is the clause that has been holding my attention like this? It is the very first words of our text, when they had sung a hymn. I read that, and I just wonder. Mark includes this detail as well in his gospel. And I just think, how did that go down? How did it happen that the last thing that they did in the upper room before going to the Garden of Gethsemane was they sang a song. We're going to talk about that. Because when Jesus and his 12 disciples initially came into this room and sat down to this supper together, John tells us Jesus was really troubled. He was deeply troubled. And the reason he was troubled because he, was because he was in the same room as Judas. And he knew what Judas was doing. And they were in proximity like you're in proximity to the person next to you. And his heart is heavy and it's breaking. And then Luke tells us that by the time he actually made it to the Garden of Gethsemane and knelt to pray, his anxiety and stress had escalated to the point now that his pores were releasing blood mixed with sweat. And I'm going to talk about this more when we actually get to the Garden of Gethsemane later. But it's a condition known as hematidrosis. There's been, a, what I read was that there have been 76 
reported cases of it in the last 100 years where there's tension and usually deep, deep thought that causes blood vessels to burst and blood to come out of the pores with the sweat. And so you see this emotional escalation and you get these bookends. He starts the meal, he's deeply troubled. By the time he gets to the garden, he's sweating blood. And so then you have to ask the question, and what took place between those two bookends? A few weeks back, we, we, we read about how he, he got up when, when the disciples all got there and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he went around to each of the 12 disciples and he washed their feet, which was a posture of service. He was serving them. Somewhere in there, Luke tells us, probably while the disciples were jockeying for the best seats at the table, Jesus had to silence an argument, believe it or not, that broke out among them over which of them was the best disciple. They were arguing about this in the upper room, and Jesus had to say, guys, stop. Stop that. Then through his sorrow, he told them, one of you... One of you is about to betray me. And then after that, he dispatched Judas, and Judas left. During that time in the upper room, Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, and it's for you. And he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, which is for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He was telling them between these two emotional bookends, I'm, I'm about to die, and it's for you. And I will die because I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. And then he prayed. John, Pastor John spent three weeks on this earlier this year, John 17, the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for God's work through them. He prays that God would equip them for everything he's called them to do and be. He prays for those who would come to faith through their witness and their testimony. That's Christians today who have heard the gospel from the word of God. Jesus knew that he couldn't stay in the upper room forever. He knew that. He knew that the clock was ticking. Judas was preparing to meet him later, and he knew that his next move was to go to the garden and to wait. And it was time. But when they go to leave, they sing. They sing a hymn. And I can't get over it. Now imagine it. Jesus is the head of the meal. He is the master of ceremonies. He's the one who's dictating what is going on during this meal. And so it was he who led them in this song. What was the song, this doxology? Historians and scholars say that it, it most likely was Psalm 118. There was a series of psalms that were known as the Hallel Psalms. We talked about this last week. And these were the psalms that were sung during the Passover. And Psalm 118 was the last one. It was the one that closed the time together. If you, many of you, if you've read the Psalms, you know this one. It's the one that has a line of text about God's dealings with his people and then off to the side in italics, usually in your Bible, is his steadfast love endures forever. And then there's another line and his steadfast love endures forever. And that's the refrain. His steadfast love endures forever. I don't know if it was one where... He sang the line of the narrative and the disciples sang back kind of in a responsive way. I don't know. It's hard to know. 
But this was the theme and the refrain of this psalm and all of the Hallel Psalms was the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. And I want to read the last verses of Psalm 118 and I want to ask you to imagine it. I want to ask you to imagine Jesus rising to his feet after everything is done in the upper room and saying, friends, would you stand and sing with me? I want you to imagine a singing Savior, because that's what we have a picture of here, a Christ who sings. And then I want you to imagine these words coming from his mouth just before heading to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested. From Psalm 118, the closing verses. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That is powerful. That is powerful. The theme of the night of the Passover is God's provision of a lamb to die in the place of his people. And the people sang, and Jesus sang, bind the festal sacrifice. Festal means the sacrifice of the feast. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up on the horns of the altar. Now just as Jesus is the lamb, he's also very much playing the role of the shepherd here for his disciples. He's caring for them in the way that he's leading them now. He's preparing them for what's coming. He's setting a tone for them. Have you ever been so upset, so bothered, that you just didn't feel like praying? You just felt like, I'm just, I don't even want to pray. Have you ever had such a rough week that you just felt, I don't want to go to church on Sunday, not after this week, that I don't want to do that. Have you ever had an experience with another believer or with a ministry that's gone wrong and you've just said to yourself, never again, never again, I'm not going to go through that again. Jesus taught with his words, but he also taught with his actions. And here's an action that he takes that tells us so much. Would you have felt like singing to God in this moment? We're a people, hear me on this, we are a people who believe that our mood should have some say in whether or not we worship and whether or not we are in fellowship with other believers, as if Difficulty or fractured relationships or previous bad experiences are not only valid reasons to withdraw from the church or from prayer, 
But we presume that they're excuses that Jesus would sympathize with. He understands. We presume that our mood trumps God's call and that Christ understands. And he challenges this this morning. He challenges this. James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that the example Jesus leaves us with here in his greatest hour of trial is that he draws near to God. I love it. I love it. It's what he does. Given the circumstances, Jesus doesn't declare the whole Passover just a big misfire. And end by saying, you know guys, usually we'd sing a hymn here but I'm too upset. He doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to God. While we might turn inward, he turns Godward. Why? We just read it in Psalm 118. Because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. By his actions, Jesus is shepherding his friends and he's shepherding us in times of difficulty and trial and saying, listen, when you hit a rough patch, when the bottom falls out, when you're devastated, turn to God. Turn to God. Don't quit. Don't call it all a big misfire. Turn to Him. So they sing this hymn led by Jesus. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They took a walk together. Imagine them walking through the dark streets of Jerusalem, out of the city now across the valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they walk, Jesus makes this statement. These are the kinds of conversations that people are like to have with Christ. He says, listen, friends, all of you are going to fall away tonight because of me. It's written. Zechariah wrote about it. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's going to happen. This little conversation is just saturated with the gospel. It is, and I want us to see it. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of Jesus saying, y'all are going to fall away tonight, every one of you? Is this just the second person of the blessed Trinity, God incarnate, showing off the fact that he has a knack for predicting the future. Is that what he's doing here? It's not. He's loving and caring for his disciples by doing this. He's naming their coming failure. This is a display of love and concern for his friends because Jesus knew something. He knew that they were not equipped. They were not equipped for what was coming. He knew that what was coming was going to be too much for them and they were going to do the unthinkable. They were going to abandon Jesus in his greatest hour of need. So what does he do? He names it. He names it. But see the way he does it. He says to them, you're all going to fall away because of me. In other words, what he's saying is what's coming their way wouldn't even be coming their way if it hadn't been for the previous three years that they had spent following him. Their pending failure, he says, is one that was spoken of by the prophet 
hundreds of years before their character had ever been tested in this way. Their failure to love Jesus well in his hour of need is an inevitable part of the story he's telling them. It's as inevitable as everything else that's happened up to this point. And then he adds this, and it's so jarring. And I just want to, I want to read it the way that he says it so you can see how it unfolds. He says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's amazing. He says that he will be raised up, and when he is, he'll go before them into Galilee. What he's doing is he's saying, friends, your failure will not be enough to overrule my call on your life. It won't be. It won't be. You're all going to fail. You're going you're to drop the ball. You're going to abandon me in my hour of need. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And we'll regroup there. It's amazing. The good shepherd, he's leading his disciples right now through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, they're going into a dark, dark place where they're going to do things and they're going to say to themselves, what have I done? Who am I? How could I do this? And Jesus is telling them, yeah, that's going to happen. And then worse things are going to happen. And then I'm going to rise and we'll get together again. And you need to understand that you will mess up. And sometimes you will do the unthinkable. But you're still mine. And I still mean to use your lives for the purpose to which you were called to be fishers of men. This is the gospel. Is that your weakness, your failure, can't drain away the power of his grace or overrule his call. It just can't. Why? Because the Lord is God and his steadfast love endures forever. Peter, however, is like many of you, plagued with the sin of exceptionalism who feels like that may be the case for everyone else here, but I am an exception to the rule. And he doesn't let this go unchallenged. And so he speaks up. And I love the way Peter speaks up because it's very tacky. He says, I hear what you're saying. But even if all these other jokers fall away, I won't. That's my interpretation. But that's what he's saying. Because he's, he says, even if these guys fall away, this guy is right there with you. The thing that you got to love about Peter is that you know he's not lying. He's wrong, but he's not lying. That's the beauty of this man. He believed with all that he had that he was the exception to the rule. He just believed it. He was an earnest man. He spoke with his hand on his heart. Peter was the one that when he saw Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee and he was in the boat, he said, I want to be with Jesus in the water. And he got out and he walked to Jesus. This was the stuff that Peter was made of. He was loyal. He loved Jesus. And no one, not even Jesus, 
could question his loyalty to his Lord. But this is the thing about Peter. He didn't know his own weakness. He didn't. He didn't know it, but Jesus did. And he said, Peter, I'll get specific. Before the rooster crows at dawn, you will have already denied me three times. But Peter, true to form, says, uh-uh, nope. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And of course, Matthew tells us all the other disciples say, neither will we. And I wonder, who were they looking at when they said, neither will we? Were they looking at Jesus or were they looking at Peter? Now, who among us hasn't said of some transgression or sin, I would never do that? And even while you're saying it, there's a part of you that suspects maybe, just maybe, your mouth is writing checks that your will can't cash. As adamant as you are, deep down there's this tinge of uncertainty that maybe you are capable of doing this thing that you swear you would never do. And that's the thing about self-confidence. It's strong, it's tough, so long as it isn't tested. But... The trial always seems to yield a verdict, doesn't it? Peter will be tested, and he will fail, just like Jesus said. And so will James, and so will John, and so will Andrew, and so will Bartholomew, and Simon the Zealot, and James the Younger, and Philip, and Matthew, and Thaddeus, and Thomas, and so will you, and so will I. The psalm says that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That word endure is a very durable word. It's a durable word. Throughout the course of this night, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what comes after he's struck down and after they scatter. And though Peter and the others insist that it is not in them to abandon Christ, he knows it is. He knows it's in them. He knows he will be struck. He knows they will scatter. But listen, he also knows that it is precisely because it is in them, as it is with us, to abandon their Lord. It's for this reason that he must be struck down in the first place. This is why he's dying. Because this is the stuff his people are made of. He must die in their place. It will be by his death that failures like these will be forgiven. Christ didn't die for people who don't need him. He died for people who are weak, though they insist that they're strong. He died for people who are loyal, but whose loyalty crumbles when it's tested. He died for those who are usually successful, but end up failing. He died for those who are self-sufficient but then discover that they sometimes lie to themselves or that they discover that they've miscalculated what they can actually deliver. He died for the powerful who, when challenged, will go so far as to fabricate even false identities about who they really are to escape the pressure like Peter did later that night when he's standing around a fire warming himself and there's a girl guarding the door who says, I saw you with Jesus, aren't you one of his disciples? And he curses at her and says, 
I never knew the man. Same man who said, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Jesus died for the put-together person with the past that clings to you like a tattoo, spelling out the evil that you've done or the evil that has been done to you. You have something to sing about today. And that is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever because the festal sacrifice was bound to the horns of the altar and offered up so that the judgment of God would pass over you as sure as it was passed on to the shoulders of Christ. And he has given you a call, if you're a Christian, to bear witness to this, to testify to his grace. And I ask this question, what is grace? if you can nullify it by needing it. Is that grace? Jesus knows his people. He knows you. He knows what you're made of. He knows when you talk tough. He knows when you overextend. He knows when you promise you're capable of things that you are not capable of. He knows things that are coming in your life that you don't even have on your horizon. Things you just, I can't even imagine that happening to me. He knows. He knows this. He knows this. This is what the Last Supper is about. Jesus saying, my life is for yours. We are joined together in this and you are not alone. You are not alone. The message to God's people in this text is not, Jesus died, so you better not mess up. The message in this text is that he died because you mess up. Worse than you imagine. Worse than you imagine. He knows your weakness better than you know it, and he tells you today there's grace when you fail. Because there is a purpose that he has for your life that is greater than just not messing up. It's not what he has for you. I've saved you, now don't mess up so much more than that that he calls us to. He knows we mess up. It's why he went to the cross. But his call in the lives of his people is to testify of grace that we know. Mercy that we've received. Love that has been lavished and poured out upon us. And just as there is nothing that you can do to overrule it, his grace or his love or his mercy, there's nothing you can do to annul his call to testify of the mercy and grace and love that he has shown.